0: harley whitehead is a british sapper and volunteer in the ukrainian army he's played an active role in liberating ukraine and helps to save lives and limbs through efforts to demine territory occupied by russian forces he's been in ukraine since 2019 prior to the full-scale invasion hopefully that was correct harley i'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to the channel
1: yeah all correct yeah yeah um yeah so this will be my fifth year um in ukraine um firstly as a bit of a tourist and then secondly as a as a sapper so yeah
0: and that's that's kind of fascinating because was a lot of people who have volunteered really it was the impulse of seeing the full-scale war rather than the the long war that's been going on now for a decade um but what was your motivation i mean obviously you're clearly motivated far earlier than the many people who've, who've uh, volunteered what motivated you and what were you seeing that that really sort of forced you to, to go there and, and check it out for yourself?
1: Yeah, so um, in terms of the, the lifestyle, I mean, I am, I actually ended up there by accident. Um, it was a case of a bit of a misadventure to Krakow, and then I ended up in Corky. Uh And then I ended up staying there for, for a while and then keep going back. I met some friends there that I wanted to visit. Um, and yeah, yeah, just I stayed. uh and I I started then living between Ukraine and the UK, and I was doing this. I was studying at the time as well at University of Salford. so um, I was also remotely studying from Ukraine, living there, just enjoying the life really, because you know you you probably know yourself is it as a as a western expat life can be quite comfortable in U- in ukraine compared to how it can be in the uk so yeah, yeah it was good and then i know obviously- that as
0: a as a student a long time ago in the 90s in in russia yeah you know on a on a tiny uh, student grant that could go quite a long
1: way you, could, oh, yeah, you yeah. could travel quite a lot as well at the time yeah 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 definitely i was working remotely as well picking up bits of work and stuff um, but life was life was good, you know. It was it was good, and I was still coming back to the UK because you know I do have a daughter here. I'm obviously separated from from the mother, but um, but you know I've got I like to keep that you know as my daughter, so that's that's more important than anything else. So yeah, uh but yeah, I've balanced it. I've done well, and uh yeah, this has been my fifth year into Ukraine. Um, I've worked. Uh, Pretty much all regions in Ukraine. I've travelled the whole country at this point now, numerous times over. Um, and now I am predominantly based in the south, in in Kherson, Nikolaev uh, region.
0: And which part? At what point in time did you uh, really start to see a need for your military expertise uh, to to really sort of be deployed and feel you actually had to start making a difference?
1: Yeah. So um, I think. When I started, obviously, I was working logistics uh, as a volunteer for Zasu, and uh, I just wanted to get involved and really try and make a difference when it came to the landmines. Now, obviously, I work in areas where people have, you know, nothing. I, I mean, f- far, far away from the lands of Kiev, <laughs> you know, I go to areas where th- where these people some of them have it even seen an international aid agency, you know, um, and that's in the landmine crisis and that's in how people was living amongst these mines, um, after liberation and just thought, you know, maybe, maybe we can do something about it because I've, I've been quite successful in my work as a volunteer in Ukraine. Um, you know, I've, I've made a lot of things happen and and I do take a lot of pride in my work. I, I mean, I have a lot, of, a hell of a lot of passion for my job. I'm quite well known of, as, as being very patriotic towards Ukraine. Uh, probably more than a lot of Ukrainians, to be honest. So, uh, that that is something that I wanted to, uh, kind of carry on onto the demining sector. So what I did, I, uh, went to study demining actually in Kosovo, and, uh, yeah, and the rest is history. Really, I mean that. Uh, I, I wanted to hit the ground running, and I did hit the ground running. And then last year, um, between me and uh, 15 other members of our team, uh, it, between 12 and 15, I mean, some guys just came, spent a month with us, and all Ukrainian, by the way. I'm the only British guy in the team. Uh, but we removed um, 8,500 landmines in six months. Um, and that That's... That's a base figure. It's probably more than that, actually. But uh, we removed that many, which is a serious amount of landlines in terms of uh, and results compared to others, really. Um, and how many square miles?
0: Zone. I mean, that territory that's that's sort of liberated and cleaned. Because that that be used for as farmland, or is it still within you know range of uh, Russian
1: strikes? Oh no, it's well within range of Russian strikes. Yeah, um, just. Nine days ago, um, we was in a minefield. Um, I'll just explain a bit to you. So it's it's down by the bank uh, near Bereslav. And we was down in a field down that way and we was getting hit by our artillery within half a kilometre. So there were strikes happening as we was clearing and it was a case of like, you know, we had to take a bit of drastic action as well and, and get, get out there. But uh, for me kind of had to judge the situation as well that day because the risk isn't worth the reward in them areas just yet because there's also um, not only do we obviously want to get the mines out, but there's also the the thought that the Russians might return. Uh, and I do believe that that is a strong possibility. The way the Ukrainians are building their defence and anti-tank um well, anti tank defences and trenches and stuff in that area that there's something that's that they know that that hasn't been said yet, and that is that the Russians will probably try to come back for her again.
0: And then the Russian mines could theoretically work against them because I assume uh, exactly they, they haven't yeah. mapped them; they don't know where
1: they've stuck this no stuff. Chance. So yeah, yeah, no chance. Um, it, just in that in that day from uh, ten a.m. to three thirty, uh, we cleared ninety three anti tank mines um yeah so you you, as you can you can imagine how how dense you know the 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 mine situation is out there in terms of like numbers and stuff um that's just one field by the way that we're not finished with yet you know it's uh we had to use that field because it was the only dry field um there's a big problem with mud in Ukraine, as you probably know. Mud is a huge logistical problem. One hour um, working physically in that mud can feel like four, five hours. You know, it, it's really draining. Um, and also, it's it's a problem for vehicles as well. So, uh, the the field that we worked last week was uh, the only dry field in that area the mines so we're, we're still a way off uh demining season yeah i think there's another four or five weeks before we can actually like physically start going out there and, you know pulling some real numbers up and
0: there's two sort of fairly i think sort of it's going to seem very basic questions to you but i think is for me in the audience it's a really introduction to this topic as you're clearing the mines are you deactivating them or, yeah. or are you able to to shift them to reuse them in another setting
1: yeah, so what we do, we remove the fuses remotely. Um, we have devices uh, which are Ukrainian-made, which are called DZM um, devices, and they will remove the fuse from 50 meters away. We obviously have to attach it to the mine physically in person, and then we, we pull it Um and it'll spin off the fuse. But in terms of uh, anti-personnel mines, we have to obviously destroy them in place. Yeah, they're, they're the dangerous ones. It's the anti-tank mines. They're not really the ones you want to worry about. It's, it's the uh, anti-personnel because... Because you can step
0: on the tank ones and you're the, not the weight is not what they're seeking there. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, they have lowered the weight on some of them, and some of them are they trapped they'll, they'll, What they've done is, like, they've triple-stacked them or double-stacked them. So sometimes what they'll do is put an anti-personnel mine under the anti-tank mine. Yeah, which will then, obviously, activate the whole thing. Um, but they've also um, put anti-lift devices as well under the anti-tank mines. So oh, not all of them. Like, there'll be a select percentage. You know, some areas you can go miles, Without seeing this device, it's called an ML8, um, and it's you know it's just like a little matchbox sort of thing, but um, it's enough to detonate the the anti-tank mine if you if you lift it. So what we do, we we remove the fuse remo- uh, remotely, but we also flip the mine remotely as well at the same time. So it'll spin the fuse off and then flip the mine, just to make sure there's nothing on underneath. Um, yeah so and it's not just mines it's shells there's all sorts of different things you know shells rockets um you know air to surface rockets from helicopters that's a big one a lot of them haven't you know exploded they're just stuck in the ground and stuck in villages and stuff in the in the homes um because what what we did a lot last year of is uh clearing the um obviously the the uxo and the mines from villages which then allowed the builders to come in and rebuild the houses you know we did a hell of a lot of that in, in a lot of the villages in person because um as obviously me and you mentioned talked about earlier but off camera um some of these people you know they're on a waiting list of two three years before they see any sort of rebuild um and I assume that Ukraine probably doesn't want to pump a lot of money in these areas just yet, just in case, again, the Russians decide to come back.
0: In case they're retaken. And that's a that's a certain risk. And we won't talk about the shift to the defensive posture, which we know is taking place, but obviously we don't want to talk about sort of details around that. But we also know that Russia is making big pushes along the front um, during this so-called ammunition famine, Again, yep. not revealing any sense of details there because it's it's very much sort of talked about. but that gives a lot of uncertainty, does not it to the economy, to the people, and there must be people here who are who have been liberated and are haven't had income for a number of years and they're just raring to get into the fields and we know Ukrainians are by nature very hardworking people. um it must be an intense frustration to many people that they're still not able to to rebuild their livelihoods.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, as as I stated um, before to you again off camera, uh, our team consists of mainly people who lived under occupation. Um, a lot of our team is actually from Novokuznetsk as well, uh, which is obviously occupied territory. Um, and these guys, this this is their. Even though we are volunteers and stuff, this is their now job, which they don't get. They don't get paid for, but they have a village house to live in, they get meals, you know, they get, if they need something, we're just buying them, you know, because we get donors and stuff online. Um, we do have support and stuff online of people on the internet. Um, but, you know, that this is now their income. These are guys who used to be engineers, you know, um, one guy used to make bouncy castles, <laughs> you know, um, and, and, and we also have a farmer as well who, in a shell strike actually uh he lost his house um lost his wife and he literally lives in the ruins of the house in like a closed off bit that is actually made habitable um and his son's just been killed in the in the fire in November and 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 his son is actually buried in the cemetery next to the house now I do have a video on that which will go online in the next couple of weeks, but it's just to show people the story of what's actually happened down her son, and how difficult um you know the whole last two years have been for these people you know some of these uh villages that we we cleared one called Herker and her son recently um did, there's nobody left you know there's two or three families living there and they they poison the water in the village. They threw the they actually threw their own dead soldiers down the well to poison the water, and the you know all, all the wildlife is dead. The the living amongst the mines, um, which we have cleared pretty much all of the mines around that village. We spent a hell of a long time there last year, um, to try and make it you know safe again and stuff. it's it is it's going to be a long time before there's any sort of recovery in these, in these areas. Yeah. That's
0: that's tragic, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of people, obviously, who are, are, are abroad, who made it out as refugees, yeah. but in speaking to some of them, I mean, some of them have actually gone back, but many of them don't have cities to go back to or villages to go back to. They're devastated. Others, you know, families that I met from Mariupol are still under occupation. So of course, uh, that's very much up in the up in the air there um from your experience on the ground we're hearing of course more and more and this is very much a russian talking point which unfortunately gets a lot of traction and that's the idea of negotiations freezing the front lines and it's labeled as as peace but many of your team have lived under occupation and as you say and now fighting with 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 every hour and and every sort of calendar of energy they've got to liberate their lands. This gives the lie, doesn't it, to the idea of peace, because if people are left under occupation, you're essentially leaving them to be um, hostages within a territory of extreme lawlessness and brutality and terrible treatment of Ukrainians, people of Ukrainian nationality, whether they are Russian speaking or Ukrainian speaking.
1: Yeah, um, I think, I think at this point in the war, I think the morale obviously is extremely low. I mean, we've just watched Abdiq be taken. You know, this is a city that is very close to me. I spent a year working in uh, Abdiq, um, and that 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 small city has has withstood occupation for over ten years, um. And I think that the occupation of Avdivka is uh, as, as lowered morale, you know, really, really bad. Lower that, worse than Bakmo, in my opinion, um, from a Ukrainian's point of view. Um, but the thought of having to live under that Russian occupation, I think, is just it's unthinkable uh, um, for some. But on the other hand, I really, really, really don't know and it as controversial as it, as it may seem whether Ukraine has the strength to take these territories back. I mean, people underestimate how much land the Russians actually occupy. It's a huge amount of land, you know. Um, you, you know how long it'll take to drive from Kherson to Pokrovsk. I think I did it last week, Pokrovsk to Kherson, it was like six and a half hours. Uh, and the they occupy that whole, you know, um, lower than that, all that whole line across sort of thing, um, if you know what I mean, everything down. And does Ukraine have the, just, it's not even the case of whether they they have the willpower because they've got the willpower, but do they have the equipment and the, the lives to spare anymore? I don't know. Um and i hate to say it but i just don't i don't see at this point how it's going to end uh, where everybody's going to be happy i don't think any it will never end that way you know no one's ever going to be happy but
0: and it seems that <sighs> you know i mean we're talking about this on the channel for some time and with with um uh, ben hodges and others and it does seem that just fighting on the conventional front is not a path to Ukrainian victory, whereas the unconventional war, forcing Russia into internal collapse, into internal strife, is perhaps the only way to achieve a substantial victory. The kind of victory that all Ukrainians relied on um, really necessitates a, a, a major, say, Black Swan type event in Russia itself. Now you can wait for a black swan to come along or you can do what Bodanov and his team are doing. And that is create the circumstances where black swans become more likely. But is that a kind of sense that's shared by Ukrainians that you speak to?
1: No, no, not at all. I think um, the, the thing is, is that Ukrainians don't really value Russians. In in the sense of um, how obviously the mentality and things, I think uh, obviously Ukrainians view Russians as slaves to the regime, which which I, I also share that to to a degree, um, and I think that Russians don't care about Russian lives. I'm a firm believer of that. I mean, they can just quite happily get on the daily business. Knowing that a thousand of the soldiers just died yesterday, they don't care because the thing is the the lives that are being spared, uh, the lives that have been like uh, obviously sent to Ukraine dying, the Russian lives that are dying on like, the Ukrainian land, just, you know, don't really matter to them. I mean, you're talking about alcoholics and people from places like Tuva and stuff where criminals is, as well, yeah, criminals and just the. I think I think well, I, just a, a statistic that I actually seen the other week. Whether there's much truth in it or not, but they said that out of nearly four hundred thousand Russian casualties, only zero point nine actually come from Mo- zero point nine percent come from Moscow. And I can believe that. I mean, I can believe that, knowing then what I've seen, obviously on the front lines from uh, from the day one of the war to you know around the east and the south. You know the, these. And the the bodies that we find in the minefields, well, we we find bodies that have just been left there. That some have been there for a year and a half, and you know, from from what you see in their IDs and stuff, it's it's uh, the not of most like a Russian like uh, ethnicity if you know what I mean like uh, like what you'd expect it's it's more of a Chinese looking person so um and there's contempt I see them.
0: There's total contempt they're not really putting much effort into collecting these people and they didn't perhaps have equipment that's valuable either so there's no incentive to no
1: no no no. um but again I you know I don't think um I really don't think the Ukraine have enough to win the war at this point that's that's just me being brutally honest. And I'm completely pro-Ukrainian. You know, um I've just been announced this week that I'm a terrorist against Russia. Russia have labeled me a terrorist now, you know. Um Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for what uh, I think what is it? Uh rehabilitation of Nazism, they've said about me. So
0: Not right, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, clearing yeah. mines and helping farmers. That's yeah, yeah. very Nazi. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I said they, they, they've labeled me a terrorist, but the ironic thing is is that I spend my life and dedicate my life to clearing up the terror left by them. You know. These aren't Ukrainian mines, these are Russian mines. And um, you know, I, I was reading some statistics, you know, that um 260 I've written it down here, 264 civilians, uh, as of October 23, have been killed by landlines. Um, Most recently, it was actually a 14-year-old in Bastanka, which was uh, an area that, that, you know, that we work in. And yeah, so so for me, you know, regardless of what they say about me, I know I'm doing the right thing. You know, I'm doing good work. We are doing really good work out there, but we've got a lifetime's work ahead of us. Um,
0: Let's turn to the scale of that because before we hit record, you were describing the scale of the number of landmines that were placed, the fact that they are not logged or registered, uh, you know, which which is a a legal requirement. But of course, we know that Russia has no um interest in following, you know, international law or Geneva Conventions or anything like that. But what yep. the scale we're talking about here, um, and it's often been compared to the Second World War. The Second World War was quite a mobile war. You know, is this is this fairly unprecedented, the sort of quantity of landmines and the distribution across, uh, you know, how much territory?
1: Yeah, well, there's a statistic which has said that 30% of Ukrainian territory um, is, is affected by landmines. Uh, that's the equivalent to the size of uh, the state of Florida. So, yeah, we're talking a huge amount. And when I say, you know, um, as I spoke to before off camera, uh, it's not just a a scattered lot of mines, I mean, these are laid in in by the hundred, you know, you can see a line of a hundred or two lines of, you know, 200, I mean, the most we ever cleared in one day was 252 last summer, 12 hours a day in the field, right, you know, um, quite a lot of us working, but yeah, that was just one field. And then uh, with the anti-tank mines, you have the anti-personnel mines, you know, which are the the day, the real dangerous ones, you know. Uh, they have all sorts of different ways of operating. Uh, some are op- operated by tripwire. Um, the Russians are replacing the conventional tripwire that comes with the actual kit with fishing line, um, so it's harder to detect. Um, you know, they're even putting hooks on there. There's booby traps as well. Uh i like a a typical booby trap that you might see as well is you'll see an anti-tank mine um they'll purposely expose it so you see it um and then they'll mine the ditches because obviously they know we're going to pull that mine from a distance they know we're not going to walk up and pull it you know in in person um so they'll mine the actual ditches where they think we're going to pull from you know with anti-personnel mines, So it's just little tactics and tricks like that that have been going on. So, uh, But each area is different. Um, you see different patterns, especially where Wagner um, used to operate. Uh, there's a lot more complex and complicated devices found. And, you know, um, even the Chebarashka teddy, you know, the Chebarashka cartoon figure, you know, they tend to, Stuff them with explosives, uh, the teddy bears, and because che- Cheburashka's is obviously a symbol of Soviet Union and Russia, and you, you, obviously you know it well. That was the um, Olympic
0: symbol, that. you know. I mean, that is yeah, the yeah, desecration of the Olympic spirit, right there.
1: Yeah, well, they, well, obviously, if if a Ukrainian sees Chebarashka is either going to pick it up or he's going to throw it, and they know that, so they'll booby trap that teddy, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's this all sorts of sophisticated things going on and um, used by both sides as well. You know, it's not just the Russians. The Ukrainians are finding more sophisticated ways. And this is a very strange, um, what's the word? It's just a very strange war, really, where anything's used at this point. You know, you've said... Uh, explosive devices being made out of the non-stop energy drink cans and and bottles of Coke filled with explosives and nails and all sorts of things. You know, it's uh, it is it's it's very it's very dangerous complex, and that's what that's why our job is is probably the most dangerous job in Ukraine. Um, you know, on a, on a, on average, we lose two sappers a day in Ukraine uh, on the Ukrainian side, so. And that's skill loss as well. I'm sure
0: the Russians Absolutely. are really keen on targeting uh, you guys because it's not just the 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 manpower; it's the extraordinary skill and experience that you build up, and all as you say, all these tricks that you learn. Um, that knowledge is 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 going with the person.
1: Absolutely. So what we try and do is, um, you know, without going too much into it, but we try and meet up a group of us experienced guys from different areas. Um, and discuss things that we've seen, new things that we've seen, different tactics and stuff. And I also watched the Russian Sapper channels on Telegram. You know, they know that we watch them, and I'm sure they do the same. Uh, but for me, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not mining in an offensive way. It's just a complete clear of what minds for me. It's, it's not. A, I'm not laying to to defeat anybody. Um, uh, I do agree with Ukraine Ukraine um, laying landmines to protect its borders. I mean, that's quite a controversial thing to say these days. But I think um, at this point in the war, and after seeing what Russia does when it arrives in these areas, then they have every right to protect themselves. Um, yeah, and I was kind. Of, I was, I was, um, I was told the other week not to say certain things in terms of uh, the reuse of landmines and stuff, but in my opinion and and my experience and what I've seen and and, and working in the frontline areas, uh, I fully agree with Ukraine being able to to reuse landmines if necessary.
0: um, Well, we know from recent videos, Russian incursions are increasing in certain areas, especially around Kharkiv and in the north and Sumya region. And when they come in, they Uh, they randomly shoot pensioners, farmers, civilians.
1: um, Horrific stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... um, Back in the early days, I mean, I was one of the first people into Makarev, uh, who was British um, after liberation. I, I, what they'd done to that place and in Kiev, you know, people talk about Butcher, but the reality was is that Borodianka and Makariv got got a lot, you know, worse of, of a beating than that Butcher did. You know, Butcher's just a more well known, you know, but Borodyanka and Makariv are in the in the vicinity. Um, And and the brutality uh, used by them, and and even the brutality used on their own soldiers at the time, they even executed their own, you know? Um, Yeah, you you, you can't afford for these people to come back. It's as simple as that. And if Ukraine has to, you know, use whatever it has to use in order for for them to defend themselves, and I'm all for that, you know?
0: Um, Let's extend that out to the West because this battle is existential for the Ukrainians. As you said, it's a matter of life and death. Are we failing to see it actually as a as a serious existential uh, threat to us in the West? And uh, I know you're over in the UK now with the second anniversary, really trying to highlight some of these, trying to, trying to get this experience across. Um, you know, what more should we be doing to support Ukraine in this fight, which at the end of the day is helping ourselves as well?
1: I think um, yeah, so I, as you said the other day, I was speaking in Manchester, um, trying to basically educate people on what what I think and what I see in Ukraine. you know first of all, um, I think the leaders that do come to Ukraine, Need to start maybe branching out to some of the cities that are actually under direct conflict and uh, uh, affected directly from the war every single day. I mean, going to places like Lviv and Kiev isn't a true reflection of what's going on in Ukraine, and that'll never show you a true reflection of what's going on in Ukraine. Now, if I was a Western leader personally and I got invited to Kiev, yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be pretty disappointed, you know, because I I want to see what's going on, and you're not going to get that in Kiev, you know, you got there's people driving around in Ferraris and drinking champagne and things like that. As much as I I hate to say that, that's, that's, that's the truth. You know, I'm a realist. Um, Unfortunately, Kiev has a lot of people who think the war doesn't apply to that, you know? Um, So I want to see these Western leaders. I want to see them going to places like Kramatorsk, Kharkiv, you know, um, and, and really showing some, bowls and some character, you know? Um, and showing Putin and stuff that, you know, we, we, we're we not going to tolerate it anymore. You know, sh- giving, giving Ukraine some real weaponry, you know? They need to start using aerial bombs. We've been saying this for months. The Russians are smashing the Ukrainians with aerial bombs. Ukraine's not doing it back. Why? Just aerial bombs. You know, the fabs use them. Yeah? Yeah. Um, it weakens the, the infantry, it weakens the offensive, ev- everything. And, and Ukraine's just not doing it. Um, and we need to supply more of them, Bob, in my opinion. Um, I think, personally, I think the front line of this war, uh, the actual co- conflict zone starts at the Herson checkpoint. And I'm only speaking for the South here, you know. I only work in the South. I was in the East last week, but I'm not going to speak for the East. Um, Anything before that, Mikolai Odessa, that's not a war zone, in my opinion. You know, if you happen to get hit, hit by a rocket, you're extremely unlucky. you know, I feel safer on the streets in Odessa and Mikolai than I do in Manchester, you know Manchester's a very hostile place to be honest <laughs> in my opinion, you know um, but I just think us um, in the West, I feel like we're really, really, really need to start taking this conflict seriously I feel like the really half-hearted attempts from our leaders and uh, just just shit promises you know like to put it bluntly I mean it, everything's shit it's just really half-hearted you know they I had I had a girl um she's a medic with the British Army yeah she said to me she's like um You've trained the Ukrainian soldiers before, and I have. Yeah, I trained the forty seventh. We did some demining techniques. You know, Um, I was assisting some other instructors, but I'm I'm also training to be an instructor myself. Yeah. So she's like, um, we're really struggling training these soldiers. Yeah, we've done a survey, and only seven percent of these Ukrainian soldiers find our training useful. So I was like, okay, what are you training them? She's like, uh, we've been training trench trench warfare techniques or, or something like that. I was like, what? Bearing in mind, yeah, she she's uh 26, never fought in a trench in her life. Yeah. She um well we haven't fought in a trench since World War One, you know. Um and we're teaching soldiers who've just done six months in a trench how to suck eggs, you know. So she's like, how, how do I get them to listen? I said, get them to show you, you know, mm. get them to show you. They're not idiots. You know, they've done it. And that is how you'll get them to listen. Because that's what I had to do. Because I was teaching these guys mining techniques who'd, who'd been doing it for months. And, and I could tell that people was bored. I was looking around and I was like, have you done this before or something? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, why didn't you tell me that yesterday? You know? And then eventually they were showing me things that I didn't know. And it was like, and it was good then. It was engaging. And, you know, we still speak to each other today. Um, This is absolutely uh,
0: fascinating because I had this conversation with someone the other day and it's like, not only have they got experience of trench warfare and, and various sort of flavors of that, but it's combined with that aerial reconnaissance and drone warfare. So you've got the low and the high tech coming together. Well, NATO trained people have no experience of that. And, the guy i was speaking to i said um so is is the british army you know looking at these hundreds of hours of footage are they breaking it down to look at you know the latest techniques which evolve month on month and he just quietly shook his head
1: no they're not no uh they don't as far as i know there's there's been no training on any russian munitions i know a guy who, who studied uh, Russian munitions for twenty odd years. Who's now been liaising with the army? Um, he's a British man. Um, and this is only just happening now, you know. And I just think that the minute like us in the West, we're, we're so weak, and we we uh, militarily, I think we're so weak. You know, um, I think we're very naive in the fact that we've kind of lived in this peaceful. Europe for so long, you know, that we've, Russia smelt blood years ago, you know, and they've capitalized on it. This is what I said back in 2014, when they just walked into Crimea and nobody did anything. Putin smelt blood, you know, and he thought, hang on a minute. I can, and, he, and he just capitalized on it. That's what's happened here. And again, we're, we're, we're weak and, and we're not we're just not taking it seriously enough. We're not taking Ukraine seriously enough. We're not taking Ukrainians seriously enough, you know? Um, like I said to you, you know, just, just then in regards to the training and stuff, I think the British military is so like, it's the best way to describe it, so far up their own ass, you know? Well, they're the, run by the, the, managers and administrators. Yeah, exactly, that. exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and the thing is, is that what I was saying as, as well. Uh, I was speaking yesterday, um, and in Manchester, is that our soldiers and our military, we were so used to being on the front foot and, and having super, superiority in, in, you know, in the air, but you know, and. and one thing I'll say about Ukraine is that if if we get hurt, you know, there's no there's no host, uh, no helicopter or anything come and save the day. You know, we are on the back foot. We are the underdog, um, and I think because the British military have, have never really been that underdog for such a long time. You know, we are so far up our own ass that we just don't realize there's a problem until it's too late. And and I feel like you know we're at that point now. The analogy is often
0: made with the Second World War and we talk about Chamberlain, you know, ceding territory after territory to Hitler, etc. And that example has been made. But what is less understood is at the same time as the appeasement was going on, Britain was desperately planning and rearming. So they weren't just sort of sitting back, you know, waiting for 1939 to happen. There was already a lot of stuff taking place behind the scenes, you know, retooling yeah. factories, trying to find, you know, designs uh, and testing that, that was actually going to be a match for for uh, the German machines. And obviously a lot of scaling up was required, but we didn't just sit on our hands in that
1: period. And it seems that that's what we have been doing for two years. Yeah. Uh, and I also think that the British public as well, I mean, they're, they're so fed up of... Of the government, everything else is that all this just is it's just a joke to everybody. I mean, it's not taken seriously because how can anybody take anything seriously after the last twenty years that we've had? You know, the people are that broken and depressed that nobody really cares anymore. You know, and if it comes to a point where Britain has to fight or is invaded by you know one of these, you know. Russia, China, or, or whatever, if, if it ever came to that, which I don't think it would. Um, I think we're too technologically advanced in this day and age for for all-out ground war in Europe. Um, But if it ever did came, come to mobilisation, I mean, it'd be a very, very sad time for, for Britain, you know. Sad times
0: to uh, me, you yeah. know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not... <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be able to get into
1: uh, into shape for that, but at least oh, I. No, British, same, so. same, Maybe. same. To be honest, I, I've only had a, I had, I had a few months off over winter, and uh, when we was demining last week, I was like, I was carrying each mine weighs like seven kilograms, so I've got two in one hand and two in the other, and I'm doing like this farmer's walk through this muddy field, and I was, honestly, I was doing it for about three hours, and. Oh, man. Honestly, I felt like death the day after, you know, because, yeah, I just, I'm just not prepared for it, not physically fit enough, you know, haven't really uh, done much over the winter period apart from and and stuff like that, so. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be uh, volunteering
0: a, for an intelligence I, unit to yeah, yeah, yeah. What, you know drunken yeah. Russians swearing each other and trying to get some intelligence from that. Well, yeah. that
1: well, well, that's why this year I'm 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 hoping to become more of an instructor rather than hands-on in the field. You know, um, so just to just to uh, tell you a bit about what our plans are this year. So we um, are looking at training veterans and people who've been signed off from direct com- uh, combat duties so we you know amputees people who can still work and still serve the country um we do feel like that will combat a lot of the uh pts problems as well um that are gonna come the inevitable ones that are gonna come with this conflict um because it gives people a purpose it gives people a purpose to still serve the country you know ukrainians are very patriotic patriotic people and and to transition from that military life to that civilian one is going to be very difficult for, for, for a lot of the guys who who can't serve anymore. Um, because I know people um, like to think that you Ukraine's dragging these people off the streets to chuck them in the army and stuff. It That's not actually happening, by the way. Um, UDA, which is the army um, that obviously I served with, we, we held an open day yesterday in Kiev. Um, an open training session for civilians and um, over 300 people voluntarily attended that session uh, to learn military skills and and medic skills and that was just one day in Kiev so I don't think we're going to be struggling for for soldiers you know Um, and that's something we'll we'll be uh, rolling out across each city in Ukraine as well.
0: That's brilliant, and of course you're over here, uh, really try and build awareness of what's going on. So, what's the plan for the rest of the time? Because now you've been to Manchester, uh, and yeah. I know there's going to be a lot of people from Manchester watching this who were incensed by your remarks earlier. And uh, you obviously haven't been to Stockport because that's even hairier than Central.
1: Manchester. <laughs> well, I'm from I'm from Blackburn originally. I mean, oh, well, there we go. A, Blackburn's knew. a rough, yeah, it's a rough place. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so. Uh, my plans this year, obviously I'm home now I'm home now for about 10 days uh, and then I go back to Ukraine in the coming weeks um, and I've also got a meeting in Croatia which is to help um, promote and um, make, a, well it's it's with the Ukraine government actually they've invited me so um, and it's going to promote basically the landmine crisis and 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 hopefully give people some more knowledge and and you know get 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 what what's really going on out there. I mean, they're quite keen for somebody who's a Western sapper um to go out there and explain what's actually happening in Ukraine. You know um I do have some of the Ukrainian government officials that signed up to my YouTube channel. Uh, and they have done nothing but thank me um, last year just for showing them the true reality of what's going on in her song. Obviously uh, one of them reached out to me and he's like um, thank you you know, for, for showing me what's really happening because when I arrive I get the red carpet treatment and I don't get to see all this you know. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, and that's important for strategic decision
0: making isn't it having a realistic uh, picture of Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I
1: I try to I try to be a realist. Um, in my words, you know, I don't really hold back on on what I think and stuff. Um, as long as it doesn't really get me in trouble, I try not to, you know, allow myself to get in trouble. But uh, I think that people deserve the truth, and people need to know what's going on, and that's the only way that you, you know, Ukraine's going to be helped in the long run you know it's just by being honest and transparent about what's going on in these areas and and what what the russians have actually done in these areas you know um even when i was i was talking earlier about the the reuse of landmines i mean yeah it's so controversial for some strange reason but i don't i don't really understand what's controversial about using their own munitions against them the people who brought them there i mean yeah, it's the same with of, cluster
0: munitions wasn't it yeah, i mean there's yeah. a big controversy around that but at this point if it helps you save ukrainian lives uh and doesn't add to their problems then um it would seem to be sensible to, to deploy that
1: absolutely i mean people need to understand that it's not church bake sale you know this is this is a this is a war and it's a war where the where the the occupiers not not adhering to the rules themselves you know uh, in, are, every, no in, every, no in every way imaginable there are no rules you know so why should we have to abide by the rules all the time just to appease everybody as long as you don't fall to their
0: level of cruelty but they're exactly, using techniques yeah. absolutely the very last yeah. question here is and there'll yeah. be a lot of people watching this who will want to know how they can help out but also yeah. an interesting area is is there still room to innovate and change and use new technologies and methods to increase you know the scope and speed and safety of uh, demining
1: absolutely yeah so there is some uh, companies out there that are developing technologies I mean there's a lot of these big demining machines that everybody's trying to make and I'll be honest with you I mean complete waste of money at this point if you put a three million pound demining machine near that front line all it takes is a five hundred dollar FPV drone just to come and blow that thing up it It wouldn't last ten minutes on the front line, you know. Um, but there is technology that is coming, and there is t- technology that is being tried and tested over there. Now we have been using some technology which is called SafePro, um, which is an American company. I've not been using it personally, but my colleague Kevin, he flies a drone, and he's been using this. Now we it's we're basically what we're doing at the minute. We're just trialing the technology. Uh. As in basic terms, I'll explain how it works. So it, it'll do a survey of the land, and it has a pre-programmed list of munitions um, that it looks for on the on the surface. yeah. And it will pick these, what it thinks is a mine or what it thinks is an artillery shell, um, up and it will basically relay that data back to us and tell us exactly where it is and what it looks like and things like that. Um, but we are correcting it and making it more accurate at this point. Um, we're just doing plenty of surveys and and sending them back to America, and they are, you know, correct that. But yeah, that's all. If it doesn't get 100%
0: yeah. of the targets, you've still got to do the full <sighs> sweep. I would have thought. Uh... Of
1: course, yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing will ever beat manual clearance. I mean, that is my. I always say that I'm pretty, uh, pretty solid on that as well. I mean, yeah, machines and drones and things that they, they will help save lives and they do protect the sapper as much as possible. Um, but in my opinion is that everything's going to be, have to have to be manually cleared I mean a lot of these machines don't pick up anything under the surface you know they're only picking up surface items I mean what about if it's buried you know, using with the technology. mud I guess stuff, yeah, stuff yeah,
0: actually yeah. sinks down as well doesn't it with yeah a- yeah
1: and for us, we're just volunteers. We're we're part of UDA, which is a volunteer army. It's not we're not under contract. We don't get any money from any Ukrainian I mean, we don't believe in taking money from the from Ukraine to defend Ukraine anyway. You know, that's kind of a motto and a stance that we have. Um, but you know, funds are tight and we just do what we can. I mean, our operational costs, just to give you an example, last year. Uh, for, for six months was £6,200 between the uh, the months of July, end of June, July uh, to December. Um, that was our operational cost, £6,200, and we removed 8,500 landmines in that process and with over 5,000 munitions given back to the owner. That's extraordinary value for money. Yeah, exactly. Extraordinary. <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, we tried to do our best. <laughs> That's just like diesel and... Uh, rental of the um the base that we use, but we are looking at using another base this year because it's a lot closer to the actual minefields where we're gonna be working. Um because for us we spend an hour, two hours just going to the minefields in the in the vehicle, you know, and then we've got to do the same on the way home.
0: And with the ammunition uh, there, so I'm assuming here that you're able to potentially recover uh Russian shells that can then be used in Soviet artillery yeah. pieces
1: yes me. we yes, we recovered quite a considerable amount last year of one five five shells, and all sorts of different types of munitions, even even guns um you know assault rifles and stuff because you, you need to remember as well we also clear the old Russian positions, so a lot of the munitions are, are still you know they've been abandoned there you know in Kherson. obviously you know how quick Ukraine took Kherson back. Um, a lot of the Russians just basically left everything around, you know and just got out of there. so so we have been uh, on a on a good Easter egg hunt mm-hmm. <laughs> last year yeah yeah so uh, but again, you know we also found dead bodies as well in, in that pyramid you know they get handed over to the relevant authorities.
0: Yeah, and unlike the Russian forces, I believe Ukrainian forces will then uh, try to contact the the families. So that's an extraordinary, yeah. uh, much more humane approach there. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's such a privilege speaking to you and to get that sort of firsthand insight. And, of course, I get the impression you'll tell us exactly how it is rather than sugarcoating it, which, of course, is fantastic uh, for the yeah. audience here to get yeah. that. Yeah. Um, We'll pop a link into the description. Uh, certainly for people who want to know how they can help out, whether it's through yeah. donations, contributions, or if they actually have some uh experience and they may want to do something more. So pop that into the into the description. Strongly encourage them to to try and catch up with you guys. You're gonna be in London, is that right, on Saturday for the um
1: he, where are you I, I'm not there, but Brandon Brandon's going to I think they're in Edinburgh today and then they go to Cardiff. Okay. They've been yeah, they've been in London already. Um, sure they're back to the anniversary, yeah. right? Yeah. But definitely um, worth but We will be yeah, we will be organising something this year. Um just to basically highlight the, the the problems of the landmines in Ukraine and what we're doing to tackle it. Um and yeah, we will be announcing that at some point this year. So yeah, that but that'll be good. It's something for, for everybody to look forward to. And it also shows people exactly where the money goes as well because, um, uh, one thing I have done is give uh, our donors the opportunity when times are right to come to Ukraine and actually show uh, them the work that we've done because we've had a lot of people who've done it and followed us for such a long time, and we want to obviously give something back to them as well, you know, and show them some appreciation for our work. Um, because in Herson, like I said, it's very rural, it's a long way from the cities, and you know, these areas, um. Uh, nobody's even looked at them yet apart from us, you know, uh, and, and our helps really, really, really made a difference out there. Yeah.
0: That's extraordinary. And, uh, yeah, when you, when you do have those dates or if you have any information to share, chuck it over, we'll share it with the community on this channel. And I know there's a lot of, uh, channels that have, um, you know, dedicated audiences, written Ukrainian, Operator Starsky and others, but let's yeah, just make yeah. sure those get sort of shared around. But thank yeah. you so much, Harley. I mean, it's a real thank privilege you. to talk to you about this. And,
1: and yeah, no, thanks for having me on. And, and just, a, um, I will just say my channel is actually called uh, UAEOD, um, which is UA space EOD. Um, and I'm sure you'll put it in the description anyway, but anybody can find uh, our videos and there will be some content coming up um, in the next week uh, when I've started doing my editing, the dreaded editing, you know, I'm going to have to do it at some point i mean <laughs> i've been really really busy and it's just like uh, you know you know you get
0: some ukrainian volunteers i'm sure there are the, <laughs> yeah, the video yeah. editors
1: who are i know i, know, but I just, hands, you know i'm very basic at it as well but it's just yeah i think what it is it's important for me to do my own because i also know how to stay within the law and, and what i need to show and what i don't and i suppose you know it's only really me who can do the editing
0: that's fair enough it's fair enough yeah, yeah. Well, we will definitely watch out for that. I mean, it'll be uh, extraordinarily compelling uh, sort of uh, content there. So do share it around. Thanks so much. Good luck with the
1: incredible work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.